All right, can you hear me? Good deal. So, you know, the Apostle Paul had to deal with us all the time, you know. So anyway, uh, it's so good to see you all this morning. Uh, you guys are awesome. We love you guys, and uh, I think your permanent pastor is in for a treat. Uh, I have no news to report on that. I'm not on the search team, but uh, they are working diligently, and uh, information's coming in, so just continue to pray for that. We don't know how long that will take, and I'm planning acts accordingly, so I'm kind of going month by month on that, uh, but we'll just see what God's got in mind, and so far he's not uh, told me, so we'll see what happens. But Acts chapter 13 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, let's pray, and then uh, we'll start. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all you do. And we want to give this time to you and uh, just ask that you will speak through me, uh, speak to all of us. The Holy Spirit would come down upon us and give us uh, the thoughts you wish for us to have. Thank you again for this congregation, and thank you for all you're doing here through FRAC. And Lord, as you look at the timeline of this church and you think about the, the years gone by and the years to come, you know the big picture. We do not. So we trust in you, but we trust that uh, you will continue to work in a mighty way. And ultimately, this is about the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's about glorifying you, glorifying you in this community and beyond. So I pray that FRAC would always be faithful to that and that you will con continue to guide and direct. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, I'd like to start with a scripture uh, for you to look at up here Act, from Acts chapter 1. This is one you've seen certainly before. We talked about it before, but I'd like to read it to you because this will be the foundation of uh, the message this morning. So when they had come together... They asked him, him being Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, this is after Jesus has been resurrected, but he has not ascended to heaven yet, but that will happen a few verses later. And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth, or the uttermost part of the earth. And that is the progression we see in the book of Acts. That's God's intention to take the kingdom everywhere. And in Galatians chapter 4, a passage I love, 4, 4 and 5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And I love that statement there, in the fullness of time. That's when Jesus came. God had a plan, and his plan was to bring Jesus, but he waited until the exact right time. And we think there are several reasons why uh, it was the right time. For example, they had a common language around the world, English, and uh, no, I mean, it was, it was called Koine or Common Greek. There was a kind of a common language there. There was an expectation for a Messiah. There was, it was an era of great philosophy uh, debate, public debate, and so on. It was a time when the Romans were in control of the world, for good and for bad, but basically that brought what is called Pax Romana to the world, which is the peace of the Roman Empire. And another thing, the Romans built roads that some are still existing today and still used. All right, I know, I'm going to show you some slides today that's got a lot of fine print detail. I know you can't read all of it, at least most of you can't, let's be honest. Uh, I know it's fine, but I just want you to see the big picture there of the roads the Romans built everywhere. And what that did was it allowed 
the missionaries to go forth and to reach different communities, and uh, God used it to share the gospel. I think we're in a similar time today. For good or for bad, the internet today, satellites, technology, English is the world language, smartphones, solar power, travel, etc. All of these kind of things God is using to spread the gospel. Uh, being in Africa in the middle of nowhere where there was no electricity officially, but people had smartphones, uh, you know, everywhere in Africa. That's how they're basically staying connected. So obviously you did have to have cell towers there. But uh, it's just amazing to see what God is doing around the world. And, you know, we can't predict that. We don't know exactly what's going to happen next, but God's in control. So in the fullness of time, things were prepared for Jesus to come and then for the disciples following him to take the gospel around the world. And that really is the story of Acts. So in Acts chapter uh, 13, we'll be in today, I wanted to share where we're going with this. Uh, today, we're in Acts 13, to the Gentiles we go, the first missionary journey. And I realized that I had so much to share with you that I decided it would, instead of just cramming it in in one day, that what we would do is that we will also do this next week. So this is a two-parter. So don't freak out if we don't cover the entire chapter of Acts 13. It's a big chapter. We're going to get there. So uh, in Acts chapter 13, look with that, uh, at that passage with me, verses 1 through 3. And allow me to grab my glasses. In Acts 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch, so where are we? Antioch. Prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene. So we have a multicultural congregation. We had, pardon me, we had Jewish people. We had people from Africa who were dark-skinned. So the church began, really, with a multicultural perspective. Manaean, a long time, lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. So Herod was a ruler. I've noticed over the years that almost everywhere God has placed a believer near the center of power. That doesn't mean that, that the leaders are all believers, but I remember a few years ago the Joint Chiefs of Staff were having a Bible study at the Pentagon every week. I don't know if that still continues or not, but God has placed people that are believers near those who are in power. And I may have remembered I did have a chance to duck my head in the Oval Office one time and Ronald Reagan's uh, New American Standard Bible was the first thing I saw, which I thought was awesome. So uh, anyway, I just noticed here that Manaean is a lifelong friend of the ruler, which I think is awesome, and Saul, who we know as Paul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And now the first missionary journey will begin. But before we get there, I wanted to share a thought. I want to ask you a question. What do you see repeated in this passage? What do you see repeated? Fasting and prayer. Prayer and fasting. So it was both. And they were dedicated to the Lord. They were having a time of fasting. That was a part of their regular routine. There's debate about, you know, is that for the New Testament or whatever. But here in the early church, we do see fasting here, and they're dedicated to the Lord, and they're praying, and everything they do is based on that prayer. And that's why this afternoon, or whenever, I'm not going to go this afternoon, but after the service, we're going to have a time of prayer, 
because we realize that frack has to be founded on God's will and we have to go to him in prayer. And if we never went to God in prayer, it didn't matter how big this church grew, it would be hollow at the inside, right? So that's why we pray, because we're dedicating all of this to God. We're seeking God's will. That's what they did here. So this is going to get the first missionary journey going. So they're worshiping and fasting. Uh, Paul is doing some teaching. They're glorifying the Lord, but this multicultural group is coming together, and God is now about to launch them through Paul and his friends into the world. So I want to share this with you. Now, I know without you saying it that you cannot read all of this. I know because I went to the back of the room to do quality control and it's like, man, I can't really read that. Can anybody read all the fine print up there? A few of you can who tend to be up close. I have taken every word of geography for the rest of the book of Acts and put it up on that map. So I went through to make sure I was capturing all of it. I, if I missed something, I don't think there was a lot that was missed, but basically we're going to show you the book of Acts in just a second. I'm going to give you the big picture. So uh, that's that. Now, I know you can't read it, so as we go along, we'll zoom in. Don't panic, but that's the book of Acts. So what I want you to see is that all of these towns or cities are going to be reached by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That has always been God's heart from the get-go. So we'll see that. Um, anybody notice anything else? And just in case you were wondering where. And honestly, you can point it both ways, but that's another story. Yeah. Now just in case you were wondering where you were. Anybody notice anything else? Upper right-hand corner. Those of you who are in our Sunday school class this morning, what's that? There's a loony there, but that's because that's Russia up there. This number one represents the first missionary journey, which we're about to see in the next verse. So Paul's first missionary journey. I'm going to give you the big picture of it. I know you can't read everything, but notice the first missionary journey doesn't go super far, but it's going to start in Antioch. About 16 miles from Antioch is the port town of Seleucia. They're going to catch a boat. They're going to go to Cyprus, hit a couple of the cities there. Then they're going to go up inland. So we've got Paul. You're, you're about to hear him called Paul, but we got Paul. Barnabas, and John Mark, who is the Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Mark was a young man who was mentored by Peter, the, the Apostle Peter, and he's with them. So they're going to go across the water, the Mediterranean. They're going to go up to Adaliah. They're going to then go inland. Now, inland, there were a lot of robbers up in that area, highwaymen, because you had mountain passes and stuff. So the travel was kind of treacherous. Also, malaria existed down in the, the lower areas. Maybe Mark was homesick, but we don't know why. But for whatever reason, Mark, uh, well, I hate to say, I hate to use the theological term, but I'll use it. He wimped out, and uh, Mark left the journey. So Saul and Barnabas were together after that. Paul was a very choleric guy. He's very type A. Barnabas was more... Uh, phlegmatic, more accommodating and friendly. And so Paul pretty much held that against Mark for a long time. Paul and Barnabas are going to have this out later, but not yet. So they continue up inland. They go to uh, 
the areas, the cities you can kind of barely see up there, but they're going to end up in Iconium, Lystra, where the Listerines live, and then down in the town of Derby. Now, in Lystra, seriously, though, that's where they start getting a lot of opposition. You will see uh, stoning at Paul. Uh, there are some people that feel that Paul actually died as a result and that the vision that he says in Corinthians that he saw the third heaven actually happened because he died after the stoning as a result of it. I mean, that's just speculation. We don't know for sure, but we do know that he was mangled pretty badly and then God miraculously healed him and he popped up and continued. And so they retrace their routes back to the coast and then they take a boat back to Antioch. So that's the first missionary journey. We're going to see that in Acts chapter 13 and chapter 14. And when they get back, it's going to cause an ruckus in Jerusalem because they were leading Gentiles straight to Christ and there were some in Jerusalem that said well you can't do that you've got to make them Jewish before they become Gentile which in today's terms is like you can't fly anywhere without flying through Atlanta right or wherever so Paul was like no this is an issue of the gospel they don't need to become Jewish and so in Acts chapter 15 the church will have a council to sort this out then you'll have the second missionary journey now, the second missionary journey will be similar. They'll start in Antioch, and they'll go up into Asia Minor or Turkey, and they'll get up toward the coast. Troas is what we know as the city of Troy. And in Troy, Paul is going to have a vision. Now, the deal was, you see Bithynia up there, kind of in the upper middle in yellow. You might see it to the right of Byzantium. Paul wanted to go to Bithynia, and God said, no, Paul, you're not going to go there. Instead, Paul had a vision a man from Macedonia, Greece, which you can see Macedonia a little bit upper left there. And that man was waving to Paul and saying, come over to Macedonia. And God used that vision for Paul to jump continents to go from Asia to Europe, from Asia to Greece, to go into Macedonia as a result of the Macedonian vision. And they go through the cities of Philippi, which, you know, Philippians, that's Philippi, Thessalonica, that's Thessalonians, they go down through Greece all the way down to Athens, and in Acts chapter 17, Paul's going to debate with the Athenian philosophers. He will go to Corinth, and then he'll go across the water to Miletus and Ephesus, and then take the boat back down, and then go up to Antioch. So that's the second missionary journey. Third missionary journey is kind of similar. He's going to retrace that route, <coughs> excuse me, and he's going to come back through Macedonia. And then he's going to take a boat down to Miletus, which is the port city of Ephesus, near Ephesus. And the reason I have that compass rose, that green thing there, is because there's a very significant event there in Acts chapter 20. Paul will meet with the Ephesian elders. And it's a tremendous passage regarding the duties of the elders to provide watch care for the church to guard against wolves. The other thing is that Paul is determined to go to Jerusalem. And all along the way, people are telling you, Paul, the Holy Spirit has shown us that you are going to be bound when you go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill you. You're going to be bound. Don't do it. And Paul said, no, I must. I must. He was determined. So he did it. And so the Ephesian elders are crying, basically, because they know they'll never see him again. So Paul goes down to the coast and then down to Jerusalem, and sure enough, he's arrested. He's almost killed. You know, riots break out, like the Anglican bishop said in England. Uh, everywhere the Apostle Paul went, a riot or a revival broke out. Everywhere I go, they serve tea. 
Everywhere Sid goes, they serve coffee, but, you know, it's kind of the thing. So Paul would stir it up, and he's in Jerusalem, and he gets arrested. Now, they're beating him, or about to, and he says, how can you do this? Because I'm a Roman citizen. They're like, whoa, we can't do that to you. And he said, I appeal to Caesar. They would have let him go, but instead, because he appealed to Caesar, he ends up going back up to Caesarea, and basically the Romans help him get out of Jerusalem without being killed because uh, some of the Jewish... Uh, groups were after him to kill him they were able to get him to Caesarea safely and they tell him there look you know we would let you go but you've appealed to Caesar so you have to go to Caesar so that leads us to what honestly is my favorite passage in Acts which is the shipwreck now that sounds weird but I just love that passage for a million reasons in Acts chapter 26 27 and 28 that section in there near the end of the book basically Paul has his voyage to Rome and that's because he's appealed to Caesar and when he does it, it's early winter. And so the storms are bad, the winds are bad, the waves are high, and it gets cold. And I won't tell you the whole story, but you know, the whole thing about this interim pastor thing is I don't know if I'll ever have a chance to preach this story to you later because we just don't know. So I'd like to quickly share that the boat that they were on had, uh, I think it was 275 people on it. And when you notice the route, what they're doing is they're going to the lee or the loo of the land because the winds are blowing down from the north. And so they're trying to stay sheltered as much as they can. They know that they're risking it by pushing it this time of year. And uh, they try to stay within the shelter of the land, but it gets tougher and tougher. And they come down along Crete and they bounce around along Crete. They're sheltered, but then they get into the open water. And the reason that the line squiggles is because in being in the open water, at the mercy of the storm, they lose control. It's the ultimate nightmare for a sailor. They lose control of the ship, and they are totally at the mercy of the winds blowing them all over. It's frightening. And it's amazing to watch how God worked with the Apostle Paul to make him a leader, to give him peace, and for him to be able to get up in front of the whole group and say, God's going to get us through this. Now, without being too graphic about it, it's winter, high waves, it's cold. They're miserable below decks. They're not handling it well at all. It's going up and down. These are not hardened sailors. It would have been absolutely miserable down below, and they thought they were dead, so I'm sure they just huddled up in the fetal position. And Paul is like, God's going to get us through. They did not want to go to the Sirtis, which is down on the lower left. The Sirtis today is known as the Gulf of Sidra. You might remember it was over 40 years ago, 1981, uh, two Libyan SU-22s went after two American Navy F-14 Tomcats. It was kind of a maverick thing to do, but they did it. And they fired on one of the Tomcats, and the Tomcats returned fire with Sidewinder missiles and splashed both of the fighters. And so that was in the news. But that area there is also known for rocks and shoals. And basically they knew that if they were to go into the Sirtis, they would be dead because the boat would break up on the rocks and shoals. So there's no way they want to do that. But God superintended it for them to go to this island they had never seen before called Malta. And as they were going toward the shore, basically the boat did totally break up, but they were able to get to the shore. Not a person died as a result. And Paul and his crew ended up from there going up to Sicily, Syracuse, Regium, and up toward Rome. And in Acts chapter 28, the book of Acts ends with Paul in Rome because God has kept his promise he has kept the command the gospel will go to jerusalem judea samaria to the uttermost part of the world it ends up in 
the book of Acts, going to Rome, where now we're in the capital city, and now the gospel can go all over the empire, and that's the story of the book of Acts. So that's basically the rest of the book of Acts, but we still want you to come to our services, okay? So today, we're talking about to the Gentiles we go, uh, next week as well. Then after that, Acts 14, through many tribulations, because Paul was stoned not only once, but there was more than one stoning in that passage. And honestly, I was looking for photos of stones and rocks and things, and I thought, well, you know, really, when you put things under heat and pressure way down below, it produces diamonds. And so what they meant as stoning, actually God was using to produce his diamonds. And so we'll talk about that, Acts 14. Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, there's a little statement in there that mankind may seek the Lord. They wanted to clear out all obstacles so that grace could go to the world. It's all about grace, that mankind may seek the Lord. That's what the Jerusalem Council was about. Acts chapter 16 is a story where we see the man from Macedonia waving to Paul. And so I'm calling that leap of the faith because the faith leaps from one continent to another as God's taking it around the world. And then, Acts chapter 17, I see that when Paul debates the philosophers, the city of Athens was a marketplace of ideas, which is similar to our society today. So that's what we'll call that. And Lord willing, we'll do that on October 30th. So now, would you turn with me back to Acts 13? Let's take a look at verse 4. So my objective today is to go down through verse 12, and then I want to share some things about missions with you that I think you're going to find uh, hopefully quite fascinating. Acts chapter 13, verse 4. The journey begins, verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, it is the work of God, they went down to Seleucia, which is near Antioch, and from there they sailed to Cyprus, the island. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They always go to the Jews first. And they had, got, they had John to assist them, John Mark. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now, Bar in Aramaic means son. In Hebrew, Ben is the word for son. So it's kind of ironic that Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus, is actually a false prophet. There's a lot of irony in this passage. This is going to be similar to Peter and Simon Magus that we saw earlier in the book of Acts. Now, Bar-Jesus was, he was kind of an, uh, an astrologer kind of guy. He was a magician. He gave supposed wisdom to the proconsul here. So he was like the advisor. And verse 7, he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, who happened to be a man of intelligence. There's kind of a slight contrast there with Bar-Jesus not being a man of intelligence, maybe. Sergius Paulus summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Isn't that awesome? Would we not want to pray that all of our officials would want to hear the word of God? But Elymas, the magician, opposed them. That's his other name, the meaning of his name, which ironically means wisdom, but Sergius is the guy with intelligence. Elymas opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Because basically, this is his job. He doesn't want to lose his position. So he doesn't want Sergius going with these other guys. Now, here's the shift in verse 9. 
But Saul, who was also called Paul, now we're going to call him Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. Now this word, looking intently, we've seen a number of times in the book of Acts. And so he eyeballs him very intently. And you notice the Holy Spirit is saturated here in this passage with the believers. And he said to Elymas, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? I don't know if you've ever been rebuked. Have you been rebuked like that? And Paul goes on to say, And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. This man who was so arrogant now is stumbling around trying to find somebody to lead him along. Irony. Have you heard of anyone else in the book of Acts actually being blinded? What do you think is going through Paul's mind right now as this is happening? He is reminded of the transformation of his own life in coming to Christ. And there it was temporary, and here it's temporary. They're hoping that Elymas will respond. But what happens here in verse 12 is, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So the gospel is going to all. But it's reaching the leaders, and they're responding. And those who are stuck in their old ways, their old traditions of Judaism, are not responding, many of them. And now you see also the gospel is going into areas where there is magic, and there is the fighting, if you will, of the supernatural forces. Because undoubtedly what Elymas was recognizing representing was not just magic tricks it was not just opinion but there was something demonic behind what he was doing now there's always this balance when we talk about this you know you don't want to go overboard about it but we do know that there is spiritual warfare satan is opposed to the gospel and i guarantee you anything frack does to advance the kingdom of jesus christ is going to be opposed in the supernatural realm that's the way it works and you know that, and sometimes you see it very clearly, and sometimes you don't. But we see that here. Uh, what's really, uh, this is an aside, but I'll show you really quick, is uh, some of the cultures in the, around the world are power fear cultures where they're used to seeing the spirits go at it. And so for them, they have no doubt about the authority of the Word of God. They just use it against the supernatural forces. We in America tend to be debating, you know, what is truth, and you know, all those kind of things, but there are believers around the world who just accept it. And that's where the power is. Cam and I were talking about that today. Years ago, in getting into ministry to, to Muslims, I got a Quran, I was reading it, and it was like, you know, when I look at the Word of God, the Bible, I just see a power I don't see in other places. And wouldn't it be awesome if we just accepted that and used it? And so that's what we see here with these guys. And they are sharing the word, and some respond. And it's just awesome to see. So all of a sudden, already, at the beginning of the first missionary journey, it's like, boom, look at what's happening. It's amazing. So Saul, Paul, and Barnabas go forth. So that's Acts, Acts chapter 13 down to verse 12. 
next week we will look at the rest of 13, I promise. But I want to share something with you that I think is really interesting. Uh, it goes back to some material that I ran across last year that I'd like to share with you. And there's a website called thetravelingteam.org, and they do a lot of research. One of the guys was a Dallas grad. and I mean, there are a lot of good seminaries, but I uh, just kind of thought it was interesting. They've done a lot of research on missions. Is it God's design for everyone around the world to hear the gospel? Could we say that's God's intention? Has everyone around the world heard the gospel? No. Let's talk a little bit about why that is. This is not aimed at anyone or any group. I'm just sharing the data that they came up with. I'm going to brief you on it a bit. Can you all see? That? Yeah, that's, that's decent. The blue is where Christians live. It's where Christians tend to live. The, the understanding from research is that five out of six non-Christians have no opportunity to hear the gospel. The blue there are Christians. The red are non-Christians. Each blue and red dot on the map represents 50,000 people. In Todd Johnson's Atlas of Global Christianity, it states that 86% of non-Christians of the world are not relationally connected to even one Christian. These are the unreached People within entire unreached people groups have no opportunity to hear the gospel face-to-face -face unless a missionary comes to them and a church is planted that is able to reach them. Being missional right where you are is not enough. Now, we want to be that way for sure, but that's not enough. The unreached number totals around 3 billion the world is waiting for a hope that is found only in Jesus Christ and that only Christians can bring to them. Now watch this. This will blow your mind. Where missionaries go, that's the purple. Watch, let me go back. Where Christians live, where missionary goes, missionaries go. What do you see? They go to the same place. Missionaries do not go to the unreached. This is the research. Of 400,000 cross-cultural missionaries, only 3% go to the unreached. So the statement is, I'm going to read this quote, do not let the purple fool you. Each dot represents just 10 missionaries, while each red dot equals 50,000 non-Christians. There are plenty of Christians to reach the world, but few who strategically go. While very few even move cross-culturally, the vast majority of missionaries work among reached nations with a strong Christian presence. As you can see, this leaves only 3.3% of all missionaries to work among the 2.9 billion or 3, whatever the number is, unreached. The world is waiting on a new generation of goers to move into the hardest places. Of course, these are places of persecution. So more on that in a minute. One of the, in my mind, most awesome things God allowed me to work on was a project to cause national leaders to write strategic plans to reach every home in their countries. 
Because what we found was that national leaders, and I'm, you know, I'm not trying to malign, I'm just saying as a matter of fact, often would go to the same places they had reached before. Why don't we go to new areas? Well, because it gets tougher. It gets tougher and tougher. I had an interesting conversation. Um, the ministry in Colorado Springs that you really ought to know about is called Every Home for Christ. It's up in Briargate, and I've done a lot of work with them. And I was talking to the international director one day about this, and we're like, okay, we're trying to reach every home literally on the planet. That's the mission, the purpose. And we're like, you know, well, what if they live in a prison? Alicia, you'd appreciate this. Um, can we count that? How do we get into that prison? Because they're not living in a home, they're in a prison. So we were having these discussions, it was really interesting. So I want to go back. Where Christians live is in the blue. Where missionaries go is in the purple. And where we invest in ministry, that's the green. What do you see? Money is not given to reach the unreached. Of every $100,000 that Christians earn, only $1 goes to sending missionaries to the unreached. Wow. It's not that we don't evangelize the people in our midst, but what about the people we haven't reached? So where are we going with the gospel? My purpose in sharing all this is, again, not to offend. It's just to say, hey, let's see how God speaks to us in all of this. Well, one of the reasons I, I know that we don't go further is for this reason. Uh, Dick Eastman was president of Every Home for Christ until the other day, and a friend of mine, Tanner Peak, is now the president. But I think it was Dick I first heard this uh, from about completing the Great Commission. The belief is that the first third will be easy. The second third will be tough. The third third will be bloody. Here are the statistics on martyrdom. And we're not gluttons for punishment. It's not like we want to be martyred, but just in terms of what's happening. From A.D. 33, that's uh, the day of Pentecost, until A.D. 500, there were 2.1 million martyred. 501 to 9.50, 2.8 million. Middle Ages, 11.8 million. 1358 to 1500, Martin Luther, the 90. Uh, five theses that was 1517 so around that time of Luther 17.3 million up to the American Revolution 21.9 in the 1700s early 1800s the time of Napoleon 22 million 816 to 1914 World War One, 24 million but look at this from World War One until 1950 56 million martyrs and since 1951 to just 2000, not including the last 22 years, 69 million. What that means is the first 1900 years of the church, there were 101.9 million martyrs in the body of Christ. In the last 100 years, there have been 125 million. And what will blow your mind is to look at this bar chart. Look at that. With the current trends, over 400 Christians today, each day, will die for their faith around the world. I want you to put that in context. Look around the room. 
if you tripled the number of people in this room, approximately, that would be how many believers are being martyred around the world every day. Every day. If we're going to take the Great Commission seriously, it means getting involved. We obviously need to reach our neighborhood, our Jerusalem. I'm not denying that at all. We have to. We need to reach our Judea, Samaria, team up with other churches, reach our community. We need to send resources, people and supplies and Bibles and funds to the uttermost part of the earth. But someone, somewhere, sometime is going to have to go to the unreached places that we don't want to touch. And that's where it gets bloody. And I will say, I'll share more about this next week, that's going to be mostly nationals reaching their country. I'll read you next week an article titled, We Went, But Did We Make Disciples? And I remember the first time I went to India, going in there, had no trouble, got a 10-year visa for India, but then after that, they started shutting down missionaries. If they thought you were there to do ministry, they would not let you in or they would kick you out. And a friend of mine, who's a, he lives in the U.S., but he was a pastor in India. His family's from there, ministers in India kept hearing reports of what was happening to the churches and the abuse and everything else and it was just horrible and it's like this is India this will soon be the most populous country in the world it's happening fast I would ask that you would make this a matter of prayer how do we respond as believers how do we respond as a church if you go to uh, the open doors website you can find out more data the Voice of the Martyrs has uh, daily prayer suggestions. They've got a prayer app. They've got a great website of information. They focus more on the stories of the persecuted, and all you have to do is go to persecution.com to get there. It's simple. But how does God want us to respond? And I'm asked a lot, you know, is this the end of days or is it close? And it's like, only God knows. But I do know that from what we see in Scripture, as the time moves along, it's going to get more intense. There will be more suffering by believers. It'll be more challenging. So get in the Word of God yourself every day. Every day you should have a time of prayer. And see how God wants you to respond to this. That's all I can ask. And we'll pick up the other half next week. But let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your Word. Thank you for the book of Acts. God, thank you so much for the Apostle Paul and his colleagues to be willing to boldly go into these places where he knows he's going to be beaten and mistreated and stoned and all these horrible things, to go through at least four shipwrecks that we know about, but that he was willing to do it for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at the end of his life, his life ends because he's beheaded. Help us to get a glimpse of that dedication and to have it in our own lives. And Father, we know this is a CNMA church, which means we are the Christian and Missionary Alliance, which means we believe in the power of missions and the power of working together, of being allied together around the world to reach the world. May we continue to believe that. May we continue to accept that. May we continue to live it to the glory of Jesus Christ.